0: Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 7. We have been working through the book of Genesis week by week. Uh, We've had a a couple weeks off here and there, but we have made it to the second half of Genesis 7 this week, verses 17 through 24. And before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, this is your world. This is your world. Everything in it belongs to you. You you made us. You sustain us. We are yours. Father, I pray that you would give us your creatures' ears to hear this morning, that we would hear what you have to say to us in your word, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond by the power of your Spirit in faith. Uh, in repentance and in new obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 7, I'll begin reading in verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Well, you probably know the saying, out with the old and in with the new. And you know what that means, right? Uh, it means if, uh, if you're getting a new couch, you have to take the old couch out before bringing in the new one. Uh, you may have to end an old or bad relationship before you can begin a new and better one. Uh, you must end unhealthy ways of thinking in order to begin healthier patterns of thought. The old and new cannot exist in the same space at the same time. To get rid of the old makes way for the new. And when we come to the gospel, uh, while all of that is true, uh, right? I mean, it's true in the Christian life. You must get rid of your old way of life, your old patterns of thinking, old habits, and so on in order to walk in newness of life. Uh, But when it comes to the gospel, out with the old and in with the new means actually even more. Uh, Out with the old does not merely make room for the new. The end of the old does not merely make room, make way for the new. The end of the old is the way to the new. Through death comes resurrection. And so as we look at the end of Genesis 7, we will be exploring this statement, really, that the end of the old is the way to the new. We'll do that uh, with particular focus this week on the end of the old as we come to the end of chapter 7 and the end of the flood. And yet, before we jump in, uh, let me remind you of where we are in the story. The world that God had created good has come to ruin. Humanity created to fill the earth with God's image had filled it with violence. The earth was ruined. And so God determined to judge the earth, to wipe it clean as it were to blot out every man and beast because of the violence that they had brought on the earth. And yet in his mercy, God decided to save Noah. Noah, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives, God had determined not to wipe out humanity completely as they deserved, but to preserve a remnant of man and beast. And so he has Noah build the, the ark, right which is a large rectangular floating box, and it is about the size and shape of some container ships today. And last time we looked at Genesis 7, uh, 1 through16, uh, where God has Noah and the passengers board the ark, and the day they finish boarding, God closes the door, and the rains begin. And we saw already uh, last time that, that, that the repetition in the chapter kind of builds the suspense, and it builds and builds. And, and we continue to see that here. Look at verses 17 through 20. Uh, again, let me just read those for you. And you can hear kind of the repetition, but also a, a building in it. Beginning in the, the second sentence of verse 17. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits feet. You see, the repetition there is not meaningless but poetic. Uh, The writer is using this repetitive, rocking, waving language almost to imitate the rising of the waters. We can kind of feel the waters rise as we read. You can feel the waters prevail and cover the earth. The waters rise, everyone dies. Uh, Noah and those with him are alone, left alive on the ark. We're really at the climax of the tension in this story, just before the turning point. And the turning point happens in chapter 8, verse 1, but we're not there yet. We didn't read it because we're not there yet. Uh, we're looking at the end of the old in our next time together, uh, we'll start looking at the beginning of the new. And so there, there's a kind of incompleteness uh, to what we are looking at this morning. We're in, the, we're in the middle of the story when the battle is fiercest, so to speak. So there's this tension, this, this unresolvedness to what we'll look at this morning, which just means you have to come back in three weeks to get the rest of the story. Well, as we come to the destruction of the whole earth, the end of the old world, some questions come to mind, like, is this right? Uh, Why does it matter? Uh, What does it have to do with Jesus, after all? And and what does it have to do with you and me? And it's precisely those questions that we are going to look at and and see uh, four things. You can see the, the points listed in your bulletin, that the end of the old is just, This is the the apologetic point. Uh, The end of the old is coming. There's a a redemptive historical point. The end of the old has come. This has to do with Jesus and the cross. And then the the end of the old must come. This has to do with us today, here and now. And so first, the end of the old is just. Just. As we move through this story, uh, we, 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 we can't miss, we must not miss the unmistakable echo of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the creation is echoed, but it's echoed in decreation. right? The, the formed is now being deformed. The order is becoming disordered. And to see this, actually, we have to start back in, in verse 11 of chapter 7. <clears throat> in chapter 7, verse 11... We read that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, some people try to say that the, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven are, are some kind of technical language and they either create a science that fits that or they dismiss Scripture as conveying a mythical worldview with windows in the sky. But the truth of the matter is that the language of the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven is poetic language. Uh, we find the same kind of language in places like Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, where God says, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. We're not to understand there in Malachi 3.10, God literally standing above the sky, opening a window and pouring out blessings, right? It's, it's a metaphor for God lavishing blessings on his people. Uh, we find similar language in Psalm 78, where, where God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Again, we, sh- we shouldn't understand God to be saying that somewhere up in the sky were storehouses of manna, and God opened the doors and shoveled out manna for Israel to eat. It- it's-, it's metaphorical language. And in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, we, we find the same kind of metaphor used, uh, but not for God pouring out blessing, but God pouring out judgment. And understood rightly, this language is describing the simple phenomena of free flow, the free-flowing nature of the rain pouring down together with the rising of the waters of the streams and lakes and so on. And actually in this, pouring out of water from above and the rising of the water from below is something profound. Uh, what is the writer getting at? See, that the separation between the waters above and the waters of below made on day two of creation is being done away with. The waters above coming from the windows of heaven and the waters beneath the fountains of the great deep are once again merged. The world is being uncreated, deformed, disordered. The same is true when we get to verses 19 through 20 and the, the mountains themselves are covered. What is the point? The appearance of the dry land is no more. The last bit of dry land is submerged, swallowed up by the flood. Now, many people debate here whether every last mountain was really covered. Uh, It's really a part of a larger question that people ask is, was this flood worldwide? And, And the question that we need to ask, of course, is what does the text say? Uh, first, the, the language in itself, in Genesis 7.19 says all the high mountains under the whole heaven. And that language, uh, as some have pointed out, could be hyperbole. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul said this about the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, he said, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And you might think, well, really, Paul? Uh, all creation under heaven? But Paul is using hyperbole, right, to make his point. He ought not to be taken literally there because Paul himself, we know, still desired to go and preach in places where the gospel had not yet reached. And so the language in and of itself could be hyperbole. The same is true for the language in verses 21 to 23. It could mean that every living thing wherever the flood went was destroyed, Uh, This would be similar to Paul's statement in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that in Christ all shall be made alive. That is, all who are in Christ. Uh, So that said, though, uh, there are other things in the text in favor of a worldwide flood. First, uh, if even all the mountains in that localized area were covered, according to many scholars, that would necessitate a worldwide flood. You don't get water that high that isn't covering everywhere. In other words, a local flood of such proportions necessitates a flood throughout the whole world. Second, and and we'll get to this in Genesis chapter 9, God promises to never again flood the earth. Now, if his promise is to never again send a local flood, it doesn't seem that he has kept that promise. But if his promise is to never again flood the whole earth, then it is clear that God has been faithful. And so, in my mind, the, the biblical evidence leans in favor of a worldwide catastrophic flood. And of course, the universal memory of that among ancient peoples, as we have talked about in past weeks, really only corroborates that point. But again, we must not miss the point of the passage for the controversy surrounding it. As with day two, now day three of creation has been undone, the land has been swallowed up by the waters. And finally, we have the destruction of all of life in verses 21 to 23, and in verse 21 at least, the animals are listed in the order of their creation, ending climactically with man. Days five and six of creation have now been undone. And so with the exception of days one and four, which deal with light and the sun and the moon and the stars, which aren't affected by the flood, uh, every other workday of creation has been overturned. God has systematically undone the created order. What are we to make of that? Well, the end of the old is just. I I wanted to call this point, the end of the old is the end of the old, uh, meaning the discontinuation of the old world is the outcome of the old way of life. Uh, But I settled for clarity. The end of the old is just. And why is that? Well, remember what humanity had begun to do. Human beings, instead of filling the earth with the image of God, had filled it with violence. Instead of furthering God's order, they had corrupted it. They had brought ruin instead of regularity. Humanity had already begun decreation, they had already brought disorder. God simply gave them up to their disorderliness. This, by the way, is a principle throughout Scripture. God's judgment is giving us over to our sin. We turn from him, he turns from us. We oppress, we become oppressed. The the one who murders, taking the life of a fellow human being, we will see, will himself have his life taken by a fellow human being. Uh, The principle of justice is eye for eye, no more, no less. And and actually, God himself does not break this principle in the gospel, as we sometimes think. Rather, he fulfills it by laying justice on his son. Jesus takes our punishment so that justice is satisfied. Mercy is not the undoing of justice, but the fulfilling of it on behalf of another, taking the debt of another upon oneself. This is, after all, what forgiveness always does. We take the pain rather than exacting it from another. The principle of justice remains. Sometimes it leads to what G.K. Beale calls retributive irony. uh, uh, In in the book of Esther, Haman seeks to hang Mordecai from the gallows, and he himself is hung by those very gallows. Uh, The wicked man digs a pit in Psalm 7, but Psalm 7 says he himself falls into it. Romans 1 tells us that God gave people up to their own sin as judgment. See, God punishes us by giving us over to our own plans, to our own devices, and our own sins. Humanity had begun to undo God's order in creation. What does he do? He gives them over to a disordered world, undoing the life-giving order he had put in place in the beginning. Moses really could have used the very same language in Genesis 7 that Paul uses in Romans 1. God gave them up to their sinful ways. They wanted disorder. God gave them disorder. And friends, as scary as that may be, and and really uh, they are and should be, God's judgments, as scary as they are, they're always just. And remember, God knows the heart. God knows the actions. He knows every secret word. He knows every unspoken intention. He never misjudges a situation. No, as scary as it is in his justice, he knows, exa- he is, always gives us exactly what we want, that we rarely understand or admit the implications of that ahead of time. They wanted disorder, they got disorder. Now, judgment is not the end. Right? We, can't, we can't stop with judgment. Judgment never has the last word in Scripture. Uh, the end of the old is the way to the new. God judged the world in the days of Noah to bring. Out of that old world, a new one, he was cleansing the the world of violence in order to give the world a fresh start, and we will get there in weeks to come, but we're not there yet. For now, uh, that's kind of the, the apologetic point, right? The end of the old is just. God's judgment is to give us over to our sin. Our disordered hearts received a disordered creation. Second, the end of the old is coming. This is the the, the redemptive historical point, if I can put it that way. When we think about history, we we might think of the history of India or the history of the Civil Rights Movement or the, the history of Urbana. We think of particular histories. But there is an overarching history, the history of redemption. God is working out his purposes for creation. He is weaving together his narrative. And the story of Noah is just one part of a much larger story. You, you might come to the Noah story and, and read it and say, eh, okay, what, whatever, okay, maybe God did or maybe he didn't flood the earth or maybe it's just a story, maybe it's a true story, uh, but who cares, what difference does it make? Well, what difference it makes is this, to start with, uh, the end of the old is coming because the end of the old is a preview of the end of the old. Uh, here's how Jesus puts it. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What Jesus is telling us there is that he himself is coming in judgment. Just as God came in judgment in the days of Noah, Jesus says he is coming in judgment. Sometimes people read the Noah story and they contrast God's judgment in the Noah story with the person of Jesus. How could they be the same God, people say. The God in the days of Noah seems angry and mean, uh, but Jesus is loving and merciful. And yet, if, if you read your Bible carefully, you'll see both God's grace in the flood story that he saves Noah That he doesn't destroy the human race, as would be just, but allows Noah to live. And you'll see that Jesus himself says that his return will be like the days of Noah. He will come and judge. Those are the words of Jesus. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The end of the old in Noah's day is a picture of the end of the present age on the last day. Peter talks about it like this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That is, where is this coming of Jesus you Christians always talk about? I don't see any coming. Peter goes on. He says, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That is, the old world was destroyed by the flood. But, he goes on, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus is coming. To bring judgment. Now, he's being patient right now. That's why he hasn't come yet. He's being patient with us. He's giving us time to turn to him, time to repent, time to rest in his grace. But he is coming. Uh, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right, is coming as judge on the last day. That is the Jesus of Scripture. Now, again, judgment is not the end game the end of the old is the way to the to, to the new. Peter goes on like this in 2 Peter 3. He says, "Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right since, since this world is going to be uh, destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth." In which righteousness dwells. You see that this world, as, as with the flood, which cleansed the old world and created anew, as it were, so the judgment of this world will not mean the complete end of it, but the purifying of it, and a new world will come as a result, Peter says. The end of the old is the way to the new. If we want to experience the new world God has for us, this old world must come to an end. This world of sin, this world of trouble, this world of trial, this world of tribulation, this world will come to an end at the coming of Jesus and a new world will come. And so we have the the, the apologetic point, right, that the end of the old is just and the the redemptive historical point that the end of the old is coming as uh, in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We are living in an old world right now that will not last forever forever. God is going to make all things new. And third, the end of the old has come. We live in a world uh, that that uh, that lacks nuance. Uh, I'm not sure if we just have a hard time holding nuanced positions in our heads, if the tension is just too difficult, or if there is something about the present age that invites unnuanced thinking. Uh, but the polarizations of our age often come about because people lack nuance. And the same could be said about our understanding of the person of Jesus. Most people have a picture in their minds of a, of a fairly weak Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, uh, means a kind of toast figure who just hopes we'll all get along at some point. It's a kind of saccharine, sentimental Jesus. And, and then you say things like, oh, no, Jesus is going to come and judge, and our temptation is to swing in the other direction and to see Jesus as harsh and cruel or unkind or unsympathetic. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He has experienced our weakness. He became flesh. He entered into this age. He entered into the old world. And yet that wasn't all, right? By his death on the cross, he entered into the end of the old world. Uh, We often think about the physical violence of Jesus' death. He was beaten. He was whipped, made to carry his own cross, hands and feet nailed to wood. He hung on the cross, struggling to breathe. He thirsted. He died. And the physical violence was terrible, no doubt. But it was not the worst part. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because God had forsaken him. In that moment, the father turned his back on his son. Why would that happen? We have turned our back on God. What is the just judgment for God to turn his back on us? That's what we deserve to face on the last day, God's back, his final rejection, abandoned by God's grace. But what happened? God turned his back on his son in our place. The judgment of the last day broke into time and space, and Jesus experienced the final judgment on the cross. The end of the old came at the cross. The flood of God's wrath was poured out on the cross. Jesus experienced what the end of this age will be like by his death on the cross. And he experienced that for us. So that whoever believes in him will not have to go through God's wrath, which for us would be inexhaustible. But Jesus, being infinite in his person, could experience the infinite wrath of the Father in a moment. As if he could take all of our guilt and all of our shame and roll it up in a ball and swallow it whole. He experienced the end of the old, the judgment of God for us. But again, remember, judgment is not the end game. The end of the old is the way to the new. So in obeying the Father and defeating sin and dying and being buried, Jesus won for himself and all who are his resurrection life. Through the crucifixion came resurrection. Through the cross came the crown. Through death came life. Jesus rose from the dead. The old world for Jesus was put to death on the cross And the new world began in his resurrection. Jesus entered into resurrection life and now lives, death having no hold on him, never to die again. The end of the old was the way to the new. And so we've seen the end of the old is just. The end of the old is coming. The end of the old has come. The end of the ages broke in on the cross. The final judgment came in Jesus' crucifixion. And fourth, the end of the old must come. This is the the existential point, right? All all this talk about the end of the old may seem a bit abstract, technical, uh, floaty. um, So let's see how practical it really is. In, In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The end of the old must come, meaning... The end of your life must come if you are to follow Jesus. If I want the the life that Jesus has for me, I must give up the life this world offers. If I try to hold on to the life this world offers, I will miss out on the life that Jesus has for me. The two cannot coexist in the same place, at the same time, in the same way. Out with the old, in with the new. And so I must give up boasting in my righteousness in order to receive the righteousness of Jesus. I must give up relying on my strength in order to receive the power of Jesus made perfect in weakness. I must give up pursuing the joys of this age in order to find joy in the Father's smile in Jesus. I cannot set my heart on both. And yet pleasures are alone at God's right hand forevermore. And so there's a dying to myself, a dying to my righteousness, a dying to my boasts. Paul says in Philippians 3.7, "...but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Whatever I once boasted in, I consider as nothing compared to knowing the glory of Christ. When we give up our righteousness and confess our sins, we gain the righteousness of Jesus. Through dying to self, we find life. Have you put to death your own righteousness, right? Have you placed your trust in the righteousness of Jesus alone? The only way to find life is to die to your boast, die to your righteousness, die to your glory, and find your life in Jesus. But there's also a dying to self in terms of of, uh, my way of life, my everyday. I must stop living one way so that I can begin to live another. This giving up your own life may may come in a thousand different forms. Paul talks about it in Colossians 3 in this way. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And then he says, the flip side in Colossians 3.12 and following, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, note the order there in Paul's exhortation. The old must be put to death in order for the new to live. Well, what do you, what do you need to put to death? Uh, what needs to come to an end in your life? The end of the old is the way to the new. Uh, what, what, what do you need to put to death? Is it a way of life, a habit, a relationship, a thought pattern? You know, for me, one of the things that I... I keep coming back to sadly keep coming back to is 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 anger and my desire to control it's gotten better by God's grace it truly has but sometimes it still comes out I want the way the world the way I want the world to be I want the world to be the way I want the world to be Um, I need to put that to death I need to let that go how do we do that? Well, first and foremost, as we heard earlier in First John, by confession, right? First 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but not only to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, judgment is not the end game. So we, we need to, to be cleansed of our unrighteousness. The end of the old is the way to the new, though. So even as we confess our sins, we ask the Spirit that He would bear His fruit of new life in you. And then we strive, right? We strive to live a life worthy of the gospel, dependence upon the Spirit through daily acts of repentance and faith, dying to self, and finding our life in Jesus. L- let's take a moment uh, to pray and ask the Father, okay, what, what do I need to put to death in my life? What is it that is still there, still lingering, that I need to, as Paul puts it, put off and put to death so that, I might, that the new life of Christ might work itself out in me? Uh, let's, let's pray about that for a moment and then I will close this off in just a minute. in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.